Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. Long before Europeans arrived on Canadian shores, canoes were the primary mode of quick transportation for Indigenous peoples across the continent. Later, French fur traders or voyageurs traveled through the wilderness by canoe, The canoe is a Canadian icon, like the Stanley Cup or Tim Hortons Double Double. If given the chance, would you take a longer canoe trip? Perhaps one that lasted a few months and covered thousands of kilometers? Well, that is exactly what 10 teams of men did in 1967. They started in the Rocky Mountains and they continued their journey through the Canadian prairies, into the Canadian Shield, past the Great Lakes and into Montreal. A trip of over 5,000 kilometers by canoe. Portaging over land, navigating rapids, and enjoying the stunning scenery our country has to offer. All done to celebrate Canada's centennial. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. Sometimes I'm asked what year I would go back to if I had a time machine. It's a tough question for a historian like me, so... I don't have a single answer. I would like to visit pre-colonial Canada and see the mostly untouched wilderness. Wouldn't mind seeing Paul Henderson score his famous goal in 1972. But in between is perhaps the year on the top of my list. 1967. Canada's centennial. For 12 months, Canada celebrated in grand style. The Confederation train went across the country and millions of Canadians went aboard to see each train car depicting parts of our history inside. There was Chief Dan George in his Lament to Confederation soliloquy at the Vancouver Centennial Celebrations on July 1st, which helped kickstart Indigenous activism movements in Canada. We can't forget Expo 67, arguably the biggest international event Canada has ever hosted to that point. Planning for most of these events started four years earlier when the Centennial Commission was organized. The goal? Create projects to promote Canada's 100th birthday. 
Among all the ideas though, one emerged that was truly unique. Ten teams of men from each province and territory would take to Canadian rivers on an epic journey that crossed four provinces and two-thirds of the country. This would become the Centennial Voyageur Canoe Pageant. Today we tend to romanticize the lives of the voyageurs. They enjoyed the freedom of being in the wilderness, traveling through the beautiful land that became Canada. These men were primarily French-Canadian, and they became famous because of their strength and endurance. They sang songs, camped under the stars, and had a life of adventure. But the truth is, their lives were difficult. Voyageurs were required to carry two 90-pound fur bundles and their canoe for several kilometers over portages between rivers. Some were so strong they could carry four or five bundles due to years of heavy hauling. The canoe is as much a part of the voyageur's story as the men themselves. They were long and wide, and each weighed over 300 kilograms, carrying three tons of cargo as well. A typical workday began at 2 a.m. as voyageurs set off on their journey. Every hour they stopped for a few minutes to smoke a pipe, but then they continued traveling until 10 p.m. when they made camp. With all that heavy hauling, hernias were not uncommon and the nearest doctor would often be hundreds of kilometers away. It was not unusual for voyageurs to drown on the rivers they traveled on, especially in rapids. And as they traveled, the men sang songs and musical ability became a prized skill among voyageurs, and some were paid more because of it. And many French-Canadian folk songs emerged, which exist to this day, including this one. Alouette, gentle alouette, alouette, je te plumerai, je te plumerai la tête, je te plumerai la tête, et la tête, et la tête, oh. Most became voyageurs in their early 20s and continued working until their 60s. Since they did not make enough income to retire early, they often worked until they couldn't anymore. They traveled between forts that became some of our most important cities, including Winnipeg and Edmonton. Their work built the companies of the Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company, which themselves helped build the country. So what better way to celebrate that heritage than with a canoe race across the country? Jean Rumi, a Métis social worker who is also the Progressive Conservative Member of Parliament for the Northwest Territories, came up with the idea of a canoe race and he shared it with his brother Jim, and then Norm Tyson. Norman organized the three-day canoe sprints at the annual Gold Rush Canoe Derby in Flin Flon, Manitoba, and he knew how to get the entire pageant off the ground. Entries were set at $1,000, or about $7,823 in 2023 funds. Each team had 10 men, with six paddling in the boat and shifts along the way. The winning team's prize was set at $1,500 per man, which is $13,000 today. The second and third place teams each received $500 per man. The route would retrace the original journeys of the voyageurs from previous centuries. Most of the journey would take the men along rivers with up to 14 hours of paddling a day, while also carrying those canoes through 70 portages, totaling 113 kilometers long. In the summer of 1965, 12 indigenous men took part in a 21-day trial run of the canoe pageant through 965 kilometers of northern Ontario wilderness. The men were all from the Northwest Territories and were paid $7 a day for the journey. They also met Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson during a stop in Ottawa. Now, Despite the success of that trial run, by December of 1965 there were concerns the entire pageant wouldn't run at all. 
The Canadian Centennial Commission announced on November 30th that if the provinces and corporate sponsors did not submit funding by December 31st, 1965, the Commission would pull the program. But thankfully, everything was worked out and by January 1966, canoers went to work. For the Alberta team, winter training included hitting the University of Alberta pool and practicing paddling techniques among the crew. Throughout 1966, provinces and territories joined the pageant. And by May, every province and territory except for Newfoundland and Prince Edward Island had signed on. In the summer of 1966, trials were held to prepare canoers ready for the big race the following year. The 10-day trial ran from Fort St. James in British Columbia, down the Fraser River, through Prince George to Vancouver, and across the Strait of Georgia to Victoria. The total distance covered in the trial was 864 kilometers. And the Fraser River was perfect testing ground as it goes through some of the most difficult terrain in Canada. It is the longest river in British Columbia, flowing 1,375 kilometers from the Fraser Pass in the Rocky Mountains to the Strait of Georgia, south of Vancouver. Along the way, it goes through some of the most difficult rapids in Canada, including Hell's Gate, where the river narrows to 35 meters, about 130 kilometers northeast of Vancouver. The trials drew a crowd of 4,000 people in Prince George, which gave organizers confidence that the following year, the big event would be well attended by Canadians along the pageant course. The trial run was won by the Alberta team who finished two days ahead of the other teams. And on November 29, 1966, the Centennial Voyageurs Canoe Pageant launch date of May 24, 1967 was announced. And with that, the scene was set for the longest canoe trip in history. For the Voyager pageant, teams used canoes made of fiberglass, measuring 7.6 meters long, 1.2 meters wide, and 40 centimeters deep, and they weighed in at about 113 kilograms. The canoes were each named for known Canadian explorers, including Samuel de Champlain for New Brunswick, David Thompson for Alberta, and Alexander Mackenzie for the Northwest Territories. Paddles were made of laminated wood and were selected by each paddler and the captain. And unlike the voyageurs of bygone days, these voyageurs wouldn't need to transport food with them. A truck would meet them at each stop and provide hot meals waiting for the rowers to arrive. It carried 30,000 eggs, 21 tons of bacon, 60,000 pancakes, 10,000 quarts of milk, half a ton of honey, 6 tons of steaks, 2.5 tons of potatoes, 5,000 loaves of bread, and 1.5 tons of butter. A dietitian was also hired by the federal government to create the best menu for the voyageurs to help manage the calorie consumption because the men would be burning such a large amount each day. Oh, and one more thing was needed that would help make the entire trip a lot more enjoyable. 6,000 liters of insect repellent. The teams in the pageant were made up of indigenous peoples, lawyers, farmers, miners, guides, trappers, musicians, railroaders, Inuit, skiers, laborers, and students. Each team of 10 was made up of a cross-section of men from across the country, but one community was overly represented, Flinflon, which sits on the border of Manitoba and Saskatchewan. The Manitoba team had nine men from Flinflon. Don Starkwell, an adventurer, diarist, and author, was the only one who came from elsewhere in the province. The Saskatchewan team had seven members from Flinflon, while the captains of both Alberta and British Columbia's teams both had a history with the city. And as I mentioned, every province and territory was represented except Prince Edward Island and Newfoundland, who did not take part because the two provinces didn't really have a strong paddling culture. On May 24, 1967, at 12.40pm Mountain Standard Time, 10 teams met at Rocky Mountain House, ready to begin a very long journey. 
As the ten teams pushed off into the North Saskatchewan River, the rain fell heavily, but that didn't stop the crowd from seeing the start of this epic race. On hand was Alberta's Lieutenant Governor Grant McEwen and Secretary of State Judy LaMarche. The Alberta team took a quick lead on the first leg of the journey, traveling 77 kilometers from Rocky Mountain House to Alder Flats, Alberta. Holding the shotgun, which will be used to give the signal as the Lieutenant Governor of the province of Alberta, His Honor, Lieutenant Governor McEwen. feeling is mounting at this end. We're speaking to you now from position number two at the very starting point of the race. The feeling is mounting because everybody is running down to the waters. And here is the first to arrive. It is Albertus. The Calgary Herald reported, the Thompson bucked and pitched through the white water of the rapids as its six crewmen in their orange shirts and voyager headbands stroked mightily, putting a quarter mile of river between them and the next canoe. Cars lined bumper to bumper for five kilometers along the river to see the voyageurs go by. And on the third day, thousands of people lined the banks of the North Saskatchewan River to watch the men paddle by. Many were dressed in costumes from the Klondike Gold Rush era. When the canoeists reached Edmonton, they were also greeted by Princess Alexandra, the cousin of Queen Elizabeth II. And then in the evening, a voyageurs ball was held at the Hotel MacDonald. At this point, Manitoba was in the lead, having logged 17 hours and 33 minutes on the river. From this point forward, Manitoba would nearly always maintain the lead in the pageant. On May 30th, near Twin Hills, Alberta, about 130 kilometers northeast of Edmonton on the North Saskatchewan River, members of the Cree and Blackfoot First Nations staged a mock battle for the voyageurs as they arrived. A total of seven Alberta First Nations took part in this battle. On hand was Senator James Gladstone, the first Indigenous Senator in Canadian history. He presented medals to the chiefs of each of the First Nations. A powwow was also held with a 100-gun salute for the canoes. And if that wasn't enough, former Prime Minister John Diefenbaker also spoke at a reception for the paddlers. By early June, things were not going well for the Nova Scotia team though. They were dead last, and they were short of money and equipment. And of all the canoe teams, Nova Scotia's was the only one not sponsored by their home province. But despite that, the paddlers were all enjoying themselves. Captain John Bothwell said, We're having lots of fun. We're running last and we haven't a real chance of catching the leaders, so there's no pressure on us. On June 9th, the first injury was reported when John Ross, an 18-year-old member of the Northwest Territories team, was taken to hospital with knee injuries. And then on June 13th, the voyageurs reached the Paw, which is near Flinflon. With so many men from the city taking part, this was a major stop on the journey. Fittingly, the Manitoba team was the first to arrive, and when they did, less than 100 people were there to greet them. The team was doing so well, they arrived two hours early, and as news spread that the team was in the paw, the crowd quickly swelled to over a thousand. A convoy of cars made the trip from Flinflon to see the voyageurs. Manitoba captain Norm Creer even asked his mother if she would bring him some of her famous banana nut loaf for the team to enjoy. As word spread around the community about his request, he was soon met with over 100 banana nut loaves. 
The Manitoba team took some and shared the rest with their competition. On June 26, the longest portage route of the entire journey began for the teams. Paddlers would have to transport the canoes 30 kilometers from Lake Manitoba to the aptly named Portage La Prairie. This is where a bit of tension rose between the teams. John Nickel with the Alberta team stated that not every team kept up with the spirit of the voyage on the portage. Teams were allowed to portage any way they saw fit except by motorized vehicle. New Brunswick's team found a way around that when they used an airplane wheel to carry the canoe on the portage route. Other teams used a horse cart to haul the canoe. Only Alberta and Quebec carried the canoe by foot, like so many men did centuries before. Nichols said, What that airplane wheel has to do with reenacted history, I don't know. On Canada Day, the Voyagers were in Winnipeg and were greeted by 20,000 residents who welcomed them in the pouring rain. Among them was Lord George Nigel Douglas Hamilton, the 10th Earl of Selkirk. His great-grandfather was Lord Selkirk, who brought the first European settlers to the Red River Valley. By this point, the paddlers were in the best shape of their lives. Six doctors examined the paddlers at the St. Boniface General Hospital in Winnipeg. One doctor said they had muscles on muscles. On July 13th, the paddlers reached the halfway point of their journey. They had dealt with thunderstorms, rainy days, rapids, long portages, mosquitoes, and black flies. Yet, by all accounts, they were having the time of their lives. A few days later, while the New Brunswick team slept, someone came along and stole their canoe, though. On July 15th, the thieves made their escape using poles instead of paddles, but they didn't get far. They were arrested by the Ontario Provincial Police near the Manitoba Rapids in the middle of the night. The canoe was recovered and returned to the New Brunswick paddlers. Then came July 20th, when the voyageurs had to get from Clark Island, Manitoba, to Lake Sagagana, Manitoba. Paddlers had to complete nine different portages in one single day. On August 3rd, the paddlers reached Marathon, Ontario, where they were met with dense fog. With visibility so low, the Coast Guard and Royal Canadian Navy ships came out to help them navigate the waters of Lake Superior so they could safely continue on their journey. And the trip along Lake Superior was for the most part effortless as calm waters made for easy paddling. At North Bay, Ontario on August 21st, the voyageurs were joined by four canoes containing 24 young Jesuits were retracing the canoe route of 17th century missionaries. The two groups camped together and exchanged stories of their journeys so far. On August 29th, the canoeists reached Ottawa where Centennial Commissioner John Fisher greeted them and called them the Harbringers of the Centennial. To get to the finish line, each canoe team had to make their way through the difficult Lachine Rapids. The Yukon team became swamped by the rapids and had to be rescued by the rescue boats. But finally, on September 4, 1967, Manitoba's team crossed the finish line in Montreal after 507 hours, 21 minutes and 51 seconds of racing. British Columbia came in second with 509 hours and 41 minutes, and Alberta was third at 511 hours and 33 minutes. Rounding out the bottom three teams were the Northwest Territories, the Yukon, and finally, Nova Scotia. As the crowd in our background starts to set up the applause. Bob, I guess a good two, two and a half boat length uh, open water between Manitoba. And that uh, sliding, that shifting, lost them just a little bit. BC is digging in. We 
have a few people from the Midwest with us, obviously. The Manitoba crew is across as the gun sounds. And the overall champion is the sprint champion here on Regatta Lake today. The second gun indicates the crossing of the finish line by British Columbia. Norm, why is that Manitoba team so very good? Well, that's kind of hard to say, Lloyd. I think you could probably attribute it to the fact that the fellas have been doing a lot of paddling on their own for many years in uh, two-man canoes in the professional racing circuit in Canada, and it's just a big conglomeration of a lot of, uh, a lot of effort and a lot of teamwork all put together in one canoe. On their journey across Canada, the Voyageurs average speeds of 10.5 kilometers an hour and 60 to 65 paddle strokes per minute. Welcoming Manitoba and the rest of the paddlers was Secretary of State Judy LaMarche, who had watched the paddlers leave Rocky Mountain House. The Alberta team presented her with a bison cape as they arrived at the Montreal Expo grounds. They also carried a cowhide scroll that was signed by every mayor or reeve from every town along the route and by Governor-General Roland Missioner and Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson. And as the paddlers arrived in Montreal, a large rock followed them. The rock, which had a plaque on it, was donated by the town of Rocky Mountain House to Montreal to commemorate the Centennial Voyageur Canoe Pageant. It was put on display at the Expo 67 grounds. And after 104 days, 5,283 kilometers and over 4 million paddle strokes, the long race had officially come to an end. Upon returning home, the Alberta team looked back on the entire trip as a highlight of their lives. Captain John Nichols said, I think one of the most worthwhile aspects of the voyage was we brought the centennial to many small communities that otherwise would have had no large centennial event. When listing the biggest hazards faced on their journey, paddler Dave McClure said that the bugs were terrible in Ontario, the rapids were difficult in Alberta, along with the 18-foot waves in the Georgian Bay. In 2010, the Manitoba team was inducted into the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame, and the crew of the Northwest Territories team was inducted into the Northwest Territories Sports Hall of Fame in 2012. And today, the race still holds the Guinness World Record for the longest canoe race in history. But what happened with the canoes once the teams arrived in Montreal? I wish I could say that all have been preserved, but sadly, that's not the case. These canoes are part of our history and represent a monumental achievement by those who paddled them clear across the country. But of the ten canoes, three are long gone, faded to dust, as they say. The Saskatchewan and New Brunswick canoes have been preserved and protected. Saskatchewan's is housed at the Western Development Museum in Saskatoon, while New Brunswick's is at the Woodsman Museum in Boise Town. The Yukon and Northwest Territories canoes are used in the canoe program at a British Columbia middle school. Alberta's canoe has been put on display at a ceremonial roadside shelter in Rocky Mountain House. And as for Manitoba's winning canoe, it fell into neglect before it was acquired by the Fort Dauphin Museum, completely restored and put on display. And Ontario's canoe found a home near Thunder Bay with the family of one of the paddlers, but it does need a bit of restoration. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the Voyageur Canoe Pageant of 1967. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, The Year Canada Lost Their Minds and Found Their Country, Sport North, Wikipedia, Paddling Magazine, Edmonton Journal, Flin Flon Reminder, Canada History, Montreal Star, Regina Leader Post, Calgary Herald, Montreal Gazette, and the Ottawa Journal. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production design by Rosalind Kufour. 
If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com. Or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.